Welcome back. Good song. Good song for these days. Absolutely for sure. So we are in our series, The Family Practice, where we're learning to survive with the ones we're stuck with and really applying love. And um, if you're a Talk Notes person, you can follow along on uh, um, the the talk note sheet there at the resources page, the links in your comment section, or uh, you can follow along on version as well as we kind of walk through our topic. Um, here's the thing. We're going to talk about protection today. The way we oftentimes think about God as one who protects us. This is a, a one of the great themes of scripture of understanding God as one who protects. If God is love and we're talking about love, then there's this element of love that is protective by nature. Uh, if you're a parent, you understand that. Uh, we have this phrase in our culture, mama bear, that I think plays into this idea that there is a protective nature to love. Uh, But we all have experienced those moments where we feel unprotected. And we've all had those experiences in life where the stability and the security that we once experienced all of a sudden feels like it's gone, stripped away, and we feel very exposed. It's almost as if you had this warm winter coat on, and then all of a sudden it's gone, and you're just exposed to the elements, to the weather. And uh, the question is, really want to talk about is how do we respond? How do we think about God in those circumstances? But uh, I'm wondering if you can think of a moment where you felt unprotected, like, like, it may not be someone's fault, but just the circumstance, the situation, that there was a sense of loss of security, stability, you felt unsafe or maybe threatened. And I'm wondering about uh, you all, you know, uh, Rod and Jess, mm-hmm. have you, can you think of a moment in your lives where you felt kind of unprotected and you know what, should, I should have, I should have felt safe, but I felt unsafe, Rod. Yeah, I, I think I'd have to go back to several years ago when I was in middle school. You know, I have two teenagers have gone through it and I look at how much they enjoyed their experience in comparison to mine, where imagine if you will, I'm not that tall to begin with, but eight inches shorter and the same weight I am right now. So I was an overweight kind of fat kid. And you can imagine going through middle school, you would get picked on. Mm. And so, or made fun of. And though I don't think I was ever in physical harm, it just made for an unpleasant experience. And they, there were school teachers and counselors, administrators there to help. But I guess for them, they would say, if something happens, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that would be their um, kind of default. And I get it. But, you know, going into school daily, very unpleasant. You felt very unsafe. And even though a lot of it was in your head, um, it's still made, made for a horrible experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How about you, Jess? Yeah, I go back to 9-11, actually. That morning, I was teaching elementary music at the time, and I turned the Today Show on, and like many of us, I was, most of us, we were glued to the TV as things were happening live, and it's time to get to school. Mm -hmm. Um, And my day started out with a recess duty out back with first graders, and all flights were grounded, and it just felt like a scary, eerie silence out there while all the kids were running around playing. And I felt a sense of fear and unsafety. I didn't know what was happening for us. And then also I'm here to protect these kids. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting in these moments where we find ourselves with this sense of insecurity, sense of feeling unsafe, sense of feeling um, unprotected, oftentimes will produce some pretty reckless behavior. Mm. 
uh, in fear, right? Fear has a tendency to do that and, and behavior happens. So I think this idea of what you were experiencing, Rod, in middle school, like that can produce really reckless behavior that can be self-harmful, yeah. self-harm, that could harm others, avoidance, um, really. And, and I mean, we saw this on 9-11. Mm-hmm. We saw a lot of people act very recklessly, mm-hmm. very harmful towards their neighbors, fear. And what happens is in behavior, behavior always exposes a belief system, by the way, right? So I, I always, I have this statement that belief determines behavior. Now, not like aspired beliefs, like this is what I think I believe or what I say I believe. But in that moment, when we really do experience what destabilizes us, our belief system kind of flows out of us. And I was thinking about this in terms of what happens when I start to feel unsafe? What happens when I start to feel unprotected? Well, what we can recognize is a lot of times it'll expose an immature belief that we might hold. Now, for those of us, many of us that are watching, you know, you might be watching this from a position of faith, right? There's a belief system that God is present. God is at work in this world. God is doing something. But all of a sudden, when something destabilizes us and we feel unprotected, well then, wow, it will expose the way in which we think about God because all of a sudden we start acting recklessly because we really then lose uh, the way we thought about God doesn't uh, turn out to be the way God is functioning. And so we start recklessly going around trying to protect ourselves, right? Excuse me. So, so here's the deal. Like Paul talks about this type of belief system that in all of us, there are these immature ways of thinking about God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the same chapter where Paul talks about love, he says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Mm. That there is a reality that when we become like understanding of our faith, when our eyes are opened, when we start to kind of live into it, our beliefs and the way in which we understand God should change. It should mature. A very kind of immature way of thinking about God uh, is that God is like the Godfather, right? I'll call this the Godfather (laughs) problem. If you've ever seen Mm -hmm. the Godfather movies, right? The Godfather, that there is this, this idea that God is this mob boss who has everybody in control, like that has a lot of might, a lot of power. Everybody's afraid of the Godfather. And as long as you pay your dues, as long as you, you know, give your percentage of your business, then the Godfather offers his protection, right? <laughs> and if you, and, 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 and then there's this belief that that's how God's going to protect me. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. I go to church and I, I give my money and I should have, I should be protected. And so when something happens and the Godfather, Father doesn't protect me, we kind of spiral out. And this understanding of God is, is very different than the images that we see as, as just a loving father, as the bride and the bridegroom, a lot of ways in which Jesus reveals uh, God to us. And there's actually some great points in scripture that point us to maybe a more mature or a more developed understanding of God, not necessarily as God father. And how that can shift when we think about what does it mean to say that God is our protector because all throughout scripture, we have great Psalms and we have great stories that say, you know, I put my trust in God. He Mm. is the one who will protect me. Pardon the pronoun. I'll I'll probably say he, by the way, as a pronoun for God, just out of habit. I do have this belief that God holds no gender, that God is spirit. So in a sense, 
to say he or she are both equally inadequate. <laughs> but uh, there's, there's no inherent way, uh, right or wrong in that respect. But um, there's some great stories that deal with this. And one of those great stories that I want to talk about is this story of Esther, Mordecai, and Purim that we find in Scripture. So if you're new to Bible study, there's this book in the first part of the Bible called the Old Testament, and there's this book, it's called Esther. And it's a story um, about a woman named Esther, her uncle Mordecai. Esther was a, uh, a, a young woman who lived in the part of the Persian empire. She lived in the capital. She was uh, uh, an orphan being cared for by her uncle Mordecai. And this is uh, about a hundred years after the destruction of Jerusalem. So these events are thought to kind of take place. The story is set uh, in the fifth century uh, BC. And it's a time where the Jewish people have been living in exile for almost a hundred years apart from Jerusalem. And so there is, this is their culture, the folks that have kind of been assimilated in. There's been a shift in world power from the Babylonians to the Persians. And you're, we're told this wonderful story about this young woman named Esther and her uncle Mordecai. And it gives us a background to what's this Jewish festival known as Purim. So what I'd like to do is just kind of tell you the story. And we'll look at just one or two verses along the way. But the story starts off with uh, the Persian court. And you got to know the story of Esther is about buffoonery. There's humory. <laughs> There's humorous uh, parts, humory. humory. I don't know what humory is. There's, there's buffoonery. There's a lot of um, humorous hyperbole. statements. There's hyperbole in it, right? Uh, there is a making fun of the Persians because the Persians were the oppressors. And so the oppressed group were, was trying to show, look at how stupid, look at how ignorant the Persians are. How are they possibly leading anything? You know, God has to be the one who's in control of this because these people are idiots, right? And so the story starts off with this description of a Persian empire that's so vast and so big. And uh, the, the king of Persia at the time is having this huge party. He has too much to drink. He calls for his queen Vashti to come out and display her beauty wearing the royal crown. Well, Vashti says, I'm not doing that. I'm not coming out and I'm not going to be put on display. I'm not your little puppet. And so <laughs> she rebels against the king and all the king's officials, the wisest ones in Persia, they freak out over this because their male ego uh, is is totally attacked by this. And we see this all throughout that the Persian male ego can't handle uh, being slighted, right? So what happens is they banish Vashti and they start this huge Persian Miss America contest, right? (laughs) It's this idea, we got to find a new queen. And so Esther enters into this contest. Mordecai, her uncle, helpers, helps her. And what do you know? She wins. And she becomes the queen of Persia. Mordecai starts to work in the palace. Now, Mordecai is working in the palace. And one night, he overhears two of the king's guards uh, plotting to assassinate the king. They had become angry with the king. And so they put a plan in place. They had access to the king. They were the king's private body guards. And Mordecai goes to Esther and says, Esther, there's a plot to assassinate the king. You need to go and tell the king. And Esther says, I'm in good position here. This is great. And so Esther goes and tells the king. It turns out that this plot is true. It's thwarted. And Mordecai's, uh, the story the story of Mordecai, his, his, his uh, unfolding and discovering the plot is written down in the annals of the Persian empire. And what we see here is that Mordecai, this is kind of the first place of protection, like Mordecai protected the king through the influence of Esther. Like Mordecai understood that Esther was in a position to offer protection. And so he leveraged that. There was nothing inherently wrong mm. with Esther having power, being in the palace, mm-hmm. but 
Mordecai understood it to be such for the protection of the king. And so in chapter three of this story, we kind of, the, the plot begins to unfold a little bit more. And we find out that who the real enemy in this story, the enemy of the Jews is a guy named Haman. And Haman and Mordecai are part of two ethnicities that their rivalry goes back for centuries. And their people groups hated one another. Well, Haman is elevated to second in command of Persia and everyone is commanded to bow down to Haman. But Mordecai, Esther's uncle, refuses to do this because he refuses to bend the knee to his mortal enemy of this ethnic group. And so what happens is this, again, Haman is so fragile. His ego can't handle one person not giving him the deference he deserves. He freaks out. He goes to the king and he he says, here's the deal. I'm going to pay all this money and I would like to have the right to have the Jews exterminated from the kingdom of Persia. Hmm. And so the king goes with this and this and agrees to it. Uh, Haman pays a whole bunch of money and they say, well, how do we figure out when to do this? And the, they, they threw some dice, they cast lots and the word poor means dice or one die in Hebrew, mm. purim is two. And so they cast the poor, the purim, and it was decided that the day in which all the Jews would uh, face genocide was about one year later. And so the word gets out that this has happened, that it, the king has issued a decree, a decree that the, the Jews can be exterminated. And in Esther chapter four, the real heart of the story unfolds because Mordecai, uh, like everybody else, hears this and becomes freaked out because all of a sudden they feel very unprotected. Right? The Mordecai and the Jews had felt pretty safe and secure amongst the Persian empire. They had had a good autonomy. They were living, but all of a sudden, boy, now they are in trouble. And what's interesting about this story is that Esther and Mordecai, they had kept from the king that they were Jews. So nobody really knew that Esther was a Jew. Haman did probably because of Mordecai. But part of this storyline is that Esther has kept her identity a secret. So when they feel unprotected, they do what a lot of us do. They went into like Godfather mode. Scripture says that they fasted and they wept and they wailed and they lay in burlap and ashes, right? They did this all over the kingdom because they said, oh, we need our Godfather to come in and take care, send his goons and take care of uh, our people, right? We got to take care of this. Now, Esther has no idea what's going on and word gets back to her that Mordecai has gone out into the streets. He's kind of stripped off his clothes. He's wearing burlap lap. He's weeping. He's wailing. He's embarrassing her basically, right? Esther hears about this. She's very confused. She doesn't know what's going on. And mm. scripture says that she sent one of his, her, her servants out to meet him and to say, what is going on? And that she actually sent clothes out to him, basically like shape up, stop this. Had no idea. And what we find out is that Esther in the palace with all her privilege and all her wealth, she had been insulated from what would be her own suffering and death. Like she had no idea that this had, was going on. And so she goes out and she tries to find out what's going on. Mordecai sends word through her, uh, through her uh, servant, listen, this is what's going on. Like there's been this decree, we're all gonna die. And he pleads, he pleads with Esther, go to the king, beg for mercy and plead for our people. You need to do this. That's what he sends message back to Esther. And what's fascinating is Mordecai puts his faith in Esther again because Esther had actually delivered before, right? He went with the plot for the assassination of the king. She went to the king and took care of it, right? Mm. 
So he just puts his faith in her again. So we see something very fascinating here that putting our faith in people is not necessarily a bad thing, right? So Esther hears this request, but she's in a completely different space now. And we learn in the story that there's this rule that says, if the king has not called for you and you show up and the king doesn't want to talk to you, it's not just like make another appointment. It's you're dead. And Esther hasn't been called for for 30 days. And so she sees Mordecai's request as bringing a death sentence on her life. And she says, I can't do that. So Mordecai puts his faith in Esther a second time. Esther comes back and says, I'm not in the same position I was in. If I show up and the king doesn't want to talk to me, I will be killed. Well, as you can imagine, Mordecai didn't respond very well to this, right? Mordecai sends back this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in that palace, you will escape when all other mm. Jews are killed. Like, mm. don't think for a second that your privilege will keep you from the suffering that everyone else is going to. In fact, he says, if you keep quiet at a time like this, if you keep quiet, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Such a fascinating statement here that Mordecai says, listen, I, he has this deep belief. Deliverance and relief are going to come for the Jews. Now, we get a little interesting peek here into the kind of faith and the structure and the belief of Mordecai is that he doesn't say God will. He just says deliverance and relief will come. Like he has an assumption that God is at work. And if, if, if deliverance and relief isn't going to come through you, Esther, it will come through someone else. What a strong place of faith that he must have had to say that, right? And in fact, in all of the book of Esther, we never hear the name of God. God mm. is actually never mentioned. People pray and they fast, but God is never mentioned mm. as an actor mm. in the front line of things. And, he, and, and Mordecai goes on and says, guess what? Who knows if perhaps you weren't made queen for just such a time as this, for just this moment that God hasn't allowed and orchestrated events so that you might be one who would protect your people. And in this moment, Mordecai deals a harsh truth, right? And that harsh truth is actually a protection for Esther. Like if you don't act Esther, you surely will die and God will bring relief through some other mechanism. Mm. So Esther gets this message and takes it to heart. She has a salvation experience, right? <laughs> she was moving in a way in a path uh, of avoiding, right? Kind of a reckless behavior for other people, but good for her, right? And so she hears this and she, she changes her mind and she says, okay, Mordecai, I'll do it. Go tell everybody to fast for me and pray. Like there still is this underlying tone of trust that God is present and working, but there's not just a sit back and expect the Godfather to send goons and deal with it. And she says, we'll pray and fast as well, my maidservants. And, and then she finishes with this she, at the end of chapter four, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. And if I must die, I must die. We see a great reversal in Esther's heart. And Esther now acts recklessly to protect her people, not her position, right? Just like I said, when we feel unprotected, we have a tendency to act recklessly. And she was acting recklessly uh, towards her people uh, so that she might keep her position. But when she really has this understanding of how God protects people and she accepts her responsibility, 
She says, okay, I'm going to go in. And so the story goes, she goes in, the king welcomes her in and notices that she is uh, sad. And she comes up with this amazing scheme of this series of banquets that exposes Haman as the villain uh, and Mordecai as the uh, victor. And Haman is actually impaled on a stake that was prepared for Mordecai. And and, uh, Mordecai is elevated to second in command. The Jews are rescued by another order that allows them to defend themselves. And at the end of the day, the Jews are saved and there's this holiday established called Purim. Again, it's based on the dice that were cast. And that holiday is still celebrated every year in Jewish communities, reminding them of God's protection of the people of Israel against the Persian threat. But yet God is not mentioned anywhere in this story. What we see are people acting to protect others. And there's a recognition that that's how God is at work. And that's the point. The point is that family, right? Esther was family to the Jews, right? Family acts recklessly to protect their people, not their position. That's what it means to be a protector, to be family and to trust God with the outcomes that God is at work, right? To trust that relief will come. Even if it doesn't come in the way that I think it should, I'm trusting that it will happen, but I'm also looking. I've got my eyes open for that God uses people. So in your everyday shelter in place life and my everyday shelter in place life, I want to encourage us this week to practice protecting one another. And we practice protecting one another, first of all, by understanding this idea of solidarity. Like, how can I act in solidarity? If there's a person in my family who's Mm -hmm. suffering, if there's a person in my family who's feeling hurt and, and feeling unprotected, how do I come alongside them and be protection? And here's what's interesting about solidarity. Solidarity does not require accepting Uh, excuse me, doesn't require that we understand someone's suffering, just that we accept it as real, right? I don't know that Esther fully understood the suffering that the Jews outside the palace were experiencing, right? Because she was insulated. But at some point there was a salvation experience. There was a transformation in her life that she accepted the suffering. And she said, you know what? It it, it could be mine. It it is going to be mine. And so then she acts. Whereas empathy says, I understand what you're going through. I would make the same decision you would if I had been through it. You like there's an empathetic response. I think that solidarity is empathy and action, right? There has to be that action. And that action oftentimes looks reckless. It looks reckless because we're putting ourselves out there and we're talking about our own pain, our own suffering. We're leveraging the resources that we have to take care of someone else to protect them. And that's a huge part in this. Mm. And so I want to encourage us to find ways that we can act in solidarity to our family. Maybe our kids are scared about school and we need to accept that as our own fear and stand with them and, and take action and talk to, mm. to educators and say, we need to do something. My kid is feeling this way. And you have to kind of take up their cause and do that for our spouse. We might not understand it, mm. but if we will accept that suffering, then we can step into it. And then here's a fun thing that I want to encourage us to do. And that is, I want to encourage all of us to celebrate a Purim of hope this Tuesday night. I want everybody to throw a Purim party. Now, this is a Jewish holiday that we're borrowing. We're co-opting, right? And we're adapting it. And it's a party of hope. It's a party where we, we, we call out and recognize that we are protected by God predominantly through the gracious acts of other people, through the courage of other people. And so th- here's what a party looks like. A Purim party, like they, would, they play a dice game. So play Yahtzee, right? Or <laughs> play some game. So play games on Tuesday night. In Purim, the, the Jewish people are commanded to overeat and overindulge in alcohol. 
Like they, it's just a big party, right? Like that, that's a command. Now you're not, you don't go too far, but far enough to be like, we got to celebrate. We could have been killed, right? But we were spared. And so Tuesday night, throw a party, make special food, plan for it. Like make that your day. Like we, we've talked about this as our family. Like we want to make Tuesday this special day where like we're planning for it. The party starts in the evening and we're going to have food out and we're going to celebrate that God protects us, especially in the midst of this crisis, that if our help doesn't come from the way we think it's going mm. to, it will come from some other me- measure and mechanism. And we're going to tell stories about how God has protected us. Uh, we told our kids, you got to tell a story of where you feel like God protected you. We're going to maybe read the story of Esther. We talked about doing that. Um, if you have young kids, you can act. The story of Esther is so fun to act out. Like you can just read it as a narrative and have different characters <laughs> and boo when Haman shows up in, in Jewish synagogues. They read the story of Esther on Purim. And when Haman's name is mentioned, everybody shouts and they boo and kids have little noisemakers that stamp out because it says that Haman's name was blotted out. And so, you know, there's all kinds of fun things you can do to celebrate it. And it is a space of hope. And I would love for you to take pictures of your Purim celebration. People wear costumes, right? So you might want to wear costumes that night, whatever it might be. It's, it really is this kind of weird um, mixture of like Christmas and Halloween and like all this crazy stuff. You can Google Purim and see things, but make it your own. The point is, let's celebrate that God protects through ways oftentimes that seem very normal, through people who have the courage to step out, mm. right? And so that's my encouragement. And if we'll do this, if we will start to celebrate God's protection in our lives through other people, if we will accept our responsibility, it makes a huge difference in our households because we create homes homes and families where, where it, that are stable, right? Like Mordecai was stable. He believed this is going to happen. Yep. He did the fasting, the prayer, all those things that his religion required, but he knew, you know what? Relief is going to come through some mechanism. Mm. If it's not you, it'll come some other way. There's stability when we feel unprotected and we get faith-filled families, like this belief that God is working, but it's a mature faith. It's not a faith that's grounded in this idea that the, the Godfather is going to send loads of money in my mailbox. No, it's this idea that love is going to spur someone to give me opportunity to leverage their resources. And I, I take my resources to protect my neighbors and to pe- mm. to protect my families. All right. So is Jess Pez, you're a party thrower. I you're gonna throw love, a party? I love a good party. All right. Yeah, and one thing I was thinking about, um, I had a mentor once suggest on those family nights to serve paper plates. Like yes. so to minimize and kids look yeah. forward to if they yeah, see no that they know up. that we're Absolutely. not gonna lose our night to cleaning up. Absolutely. I love frozen it. pizza, paper plates. Yeah. Make sure all time goes to games, yeah. partying. Yeah, you should have a, a candy hangover the next day if you're a kid. <laughs> right? You should have a little stomach ache because you just had a little too many <laughs> yeah. sweets, right, on the day after Purim. I'm not sure what adults will feel the next day, but it is this and it's it's a way to celebrate mm-hmm. in the midst of it all. So I mean Kaya, anything in the Kaya home you think might happen for Purim? Well, I think we're going to have to elevate because I live Purim. <laughs> I mean, if sticking in sweets is the diet, that's my diet. Yeah, so you're going to have to take it to a take whole Take it a whole new level, level, whole new level. Super special. Yeah, super special. You wouldn't get, and that's the idea. We're trying to think of like, what would our kids want? Like, that's super special that we wouldn't mm-hmm. do. Takes a lot of work. Uh-huh, it takes sure. some planning. That is the other way is to make it a lot of work. 
Yeah. A lot of planning. And that's the idea. Like, I love yeah. the idea of not much cleanup. Like, I, like I love that. the idea of the paper plate. Yes. That was really good. But, like, what could be just super special? And it teaches our kids sure. to, one, be a protector. Mm-hmm. That yeah. God has called you and given you influence. And you be a protector. And it also helps mm-hmm. us to have those eyes to see. Like Jesus mm. talks about what God is working. So what is God inviting you into today? As we wrap up, we've got this great song mm. that really I would, I would want to be our prayer that wow. people could put their faith in us mm. as protectors. And so maybe God's inviting you to do a Purim of Hope this Tuesday night. If you can't do it Tuesday night, do it another night. But I just thought it'd be fun if we could watch Tuesday night, people go live on their Facebooks or social media, post all that stuff out, uh, tag Crossroads Church, uh, um, email the pictures to family at crossroadscolorado.com. If you're part of the orange dot of hope community post in there your Purim party uh, we think it'd be fun mm-hmm. maybe read the story of esther with your family read it out loud this week at some point in time perhaps maybe perhaps you feel unsafe and you feel unsettled and you feel unprotected and you need to put your faith in a family member by trusting your suffering with them maybe that's what god's inviting you into to do today and that would take a lot of courage but be wonderful to go for it so as we uh enjoy this song as we wrap up up. Uh, I'm going to just pray for you right now, but I just, I just would encourage you to take a few moments, reflect what God is calling you into, something new, something different this week that you might be able to live into a new understanding and maybe a more mature understanding, not of God as Godfather, but as love, as a loving father, as, and, and, mm. and, being, and moving through the people around us. This is a great opportunity to fill out your digital connect card, given the offering through all those mechanisms, whether it be the envelope or whether it be through texting or through the online giving portal, all that good stuff. So let me pray for you. Lord, thank mm. you so much uh, for your presence. Thank you that you work through us. Thank you that you protect through us. And may, may we accept that responsibility to protect our families, to stand in solidarity with those that are suffering around us, to recognize that you give us resources and put us in positions for this moment in someone else's life. Mm. And we thank you for that. And I pray that we would party it up on Tuesday, mm-hmm. celebrating mm-hmm. how you protect us through other people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Enjoy this song as you finish up thinking through and making commitments for the coming week.